Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, speaker, and educator who loves to geek out with people from a variety of backgrounds about their perspectives on God, the Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Pour yourself a drink, grab some food, and join me at this virtual podcast table. This week, I continue my conversation with Dr. George Kalanzis, who is the professor of theology and the director of the Wheaton Center for Early Christian Studies. Now, last week, we talked about some of the early church theologians. And in response, a Context Matters listener, Jeff, responded on social media that he is a former evangelical. And the letter from St. Ignatius to the Christians in Smyrna changed his understanding of Christianity, and he could no longer reconcile his evangelical understanding of ecclesiology and the Eucharist with the very explicit statements made by St. Ignatius in his letter. Jeff wondered how Dr. Kalanzis makes sense of these issues. Now, this is really interesting, especially if you remember from last week that Dr. George Kalanzis grew up as an evangelical in the larger Greek Orthodox context in Greece and remained evangelical through his higher ed degrees. Great question, Jeff. So I called George to see if he had a couple minutes to spare right before one of his classes to give us his response. The answer I'm going to give you is he is in the, to the Smyrnians, to the Smyrna uh, church at Smyrna, he is addressing the main concern, which is docetism. Docetism was part of the a movement that we call as an umbrella term Gnosticism. Both in antiquity as well as in our time, uh, people were very suspicious of the body, the physical reality of the body of materiality. And the Docetists understood very well that the corruptible part of the body, the body is corruptible. It is, a, as Plato would say, it is a prison for the soul. Right? Therefore, God could not participate in that corruptible materiality. So what we saw in Jesus was basically a ghost, a hologram, we would say. Three-dimensional, we heard him, we spoke to him, but if you, you know, put your hand through him, it goes through. It has no material substance, right? Right. Well, if that is the case, then Jesus is nothing more than an idea. And from very early on, the church understood and actually had a slogan. He has a, he has a, one of those bumper stickers. Every car in antiquity had it in the back bumper. <laughs> sure. That said, you know, that which is not assumed by Christ during the incarnation is not redeemed, is not sanctified. So if Jesus didn't have a real body, an actual physical real body, then our bodies are not sanctified. Oh, we're, right. we're not saved. Yep. Okay. Only our, only our mind, our soul is safe, but not our body. I'm already, even just with that kind of introduction, seeing all the connections throughout this whole letter that he's sending right. to them. Yeah. And therefore, the connection with the Eucharist is that when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, if it's a ghost speaking, a hologram speaking, it has no reality behind it. It's like nothing. It doesn't exist. It's just right. poof, there. So in this letter... 
there it's interesting because he goes through almost this opening is almost like a restatement of the creed. Like this is the affirmation of what we believe and Mm -hmm. affirmation of the resurrection. And then it's this big section on beware of the heretics. And so within this section is the, in description of the heretics, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the important part here is flesh, like John, both in, in the gospel and in the first letter, the emphasis is the word became, in John one fourteen. the word became flesh, right? Right. And, and then in First John, who is the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. In hmm. other words, if we couldn't touch him, if we couldn't just be with him, if it was like a hologram, then this is not real. Hmm. There's right. no difference between this and Platonic philosophy. Go and be a Platonist. It's easier. Um, so the, the whole section, one through roughly five, is against the, Donat- the Docetists. Okay. Right. Okay. That totally makes sense. Yep. Now, and then this this section seven, which is mentions the Eucharist, the Eucharist yeah. several times. And then after this, we get into ideas of the bishop. bishop right. Yeah. Can you explain that real quick, sure. too? Because that seems also when uh, when Jeff refers to ecclesiology, it seems that right. that was the part that jumped out to me. Right. So, again, with, with Ignatius, we have the beginning of the long tradition of what is called apostolic succession, but also, uh, in other words, the faith that has come to us has come from the apostles through the succession of men, always men, appointed to be the the ones who hand on the faith to us. It's, it's straight out of Paul, right? When Paul mm-hmm. tells Timothy, the faith that I handed over to you, you now hand over to persons who are able, capable of teaching others. You see that four-step movement from the faith I received from Christ, I give to you, you give it to others, who give it to others, right? Right. That's that's the succession. So how do we know, how can we be certain that the faith we have received from our teachers, right, like me now, when my bishop says something, this is what Christians believe, how do I know that? Well, only because he is in proper succession. In other words, he has received the gift of the teaching of the faith from somebody who has received the, the, the gift of the faith, who has received the gift from the faith all the way back to the apostles. That succession guarantees, in principle, the truthfulness of that which is handed over. Right, yeah. In this particular letter, Ignatius has a problem, or not, not just this, but this and Ephesians, two or three of the, of the cities he writes, he has a problem. And the problem is that he has competing bishops back in Antioch. Huh. So he has, he has competing bishops. And the question is, who has the right to stand and speak? Right? And, and what he's saying here is we submit to the bishops and to the elders like Christ submitted to the Father, right, etc. Et so right. when is there a valid Eucharist? Right, which a lot of churches are dealing with that yeah. question right now, yeah. just given Zoom. Like, can right. you do yeah. Eucharist no. in your home? No, you cannot. Uh, Ignatius would say, and the church would say, uh, the ancient church would say, absolutely not, for two reasons. 
The first reason is that there has to be somebody to make certain that what we're doing is in proper order, right? Mm -hmm. That is a canonical order. Jesus says, do this, like this, this particular thing every time we get together in my name, right? Well, how do, how do we know that it is the this that we're doing and not something else? Right, yeah. Right. So an or- properly ordained priest or bishop, pastor, right? Somebody who is in charge of this thing <laughs> over the table can oversee the fact that the this that we're doing, what we're doing is actually the this that Jesus handed over to the disciples. Mm-hmm. So that ordination, that presence of an ordained person, somebody in authority, and in Ignatius's time, it was the bishop or the, pre- uh, the, the overseeing bishop. Underneath that bishop was the council of presbyters, of elders, who then functioned as priests within the various congregations, right? The second part is uh, Eucharist always comes with baptism or baptism always comes with Eucharist. The two sacraments go together, right? Hmm. So baptism, the other sacrament or ordinance sacrament that we understand in the church, is also to be oversought by, excuse me, to be overseen by a canonically ordained person. Can I go into my, you know, shower by myself and baptize myself? I pour water over my head and I go, I baptize me in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No, why not? Because baptism for the ancient church and for the church historically is a birth into the family. And that family is the church. So that birth into the church, right, is overseen by the ones who are in charge of the family. Mm -hmm. Like a a parent receives a child that is born physically into the family and says, this is our daughter, this is our son. We're responsible for this person. We will love her and feed her and nurture her and teach her and protect her so that she grows to be in, in the fullness of the person that she is. The same way, in the church, a bishop is responsible for doing that. Hmm. So we cannot just go say, you know, let's go and pour some water on somebody and we just baptize them. That's not how this works. Baptism is an entering into the family of God. And that's also why it happens once, historically. Baptism happens once. It's like our physical birth. You only are born once. You can reaffirm your birth into the family every year at your birthday <laughs> or right. any other time, but you're not born again and again right. and again every year when you celebrate your birthday. Right, exactly. So both of those, both baptism and the Eucharist, are material sacraments. They are sacraments that depend on matter, physical, touchable matter. And and Ignatius is arguing against people who want to be pious Christians, right? Docetists didn't want to be, you know, fanciful. They they just wanted to be Christians, but they could not see how the God who created the universe could participate in the corruptible body that we have. So they're trying to protect 
God from being soiled from our materiality. And Ignatius and Christianity, Orthodox Catholic mainline Christianity, that means the United Church, the witness of the United Church at the time, and, and through history, is, no, actually God redeemed our materiality by entering and taking our materiality, our existence, our we call it human nature, onto himself, so as to redeem it. Hmm. And that's why the emphasis on the Eucharist, Ignatius' emphasis is, if this is not real, if, if what you're doing, it literally is not the body and blood of Christ, then go home, do something else. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're denying the real existence of the body of Christ, then you are what John the, calls the presbyter in, in, in 1 John, he calls Antichrist. Hmm. He says, who is the Antichrist? The one who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Yeah. So huh. Docetists, would some groups of the Docetists, they're not all the same would refrain from the Eucharist because they go, there's nothing there. They're actually very consistent in what they do. We actually talked about this for a long time, but for the sake of creating a concise podcast episode, I had to cut it down to the bare bones. After all, I have a burning question that was in my notes from last week. It was in all capital letters and all bold print. People like to talk about the time of the early church fathers, but I know women were contributing to the conversation. Where are their stories? Where are their writings? But before we jump into Dr. Clancy's response, I have to say thank you to all who are supporting this podcast. I appreciate how you're connecting with me and giving me feedback. A special thanks goes to those who take a couple seconds to submit reviews. You are influencing the algorithms, at least I'm pretty sure you are, and new people are finding us, so keep up the good work. A special shout out to my Patreon team with our newest team members, the Sion family. This team not only covers the production cost of these episodes, but they help me further improve the quality of this show, and I am really grateful. Now back to the conversation this week, I asked Dr. Kalanzas, an expert in early church fathers, to tell me where all the early church mothers are. History is the stories we tell of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So how we tell the stories is equally as important of which stories we choose to tell. That's right. Right. So are women present? Well, not only are they present, but they're fundamental to the development and articulation and refinement of theology. Now, wait just a moment. I'm sorry. Did you catch that? He did not say they were helpful in going to places where men were not available to go, nor did he say that the women only taught a portion of the growing church. No, no, no. He said they're fundamental to the development and articulation, and refinement of theology. However, most of their stories are told by men, right? Right. They're told by men. And even though they, together with men, worked, their stories are told by men. Think about Romans 16, the book of Romans. Yes. (laughs) That catalog of women. 
Right. Right? Right. I mean, Paul is just listing the households one after the other, after the other, after the other, you know, from Junia to Phoebe to Priscilla, Olympias. I mean, he goes just Trifona. I mean, it goes down the list, right? You may also want to go back and listen to Season 1, Episode 22, when Dr. Nijay Gupta and I discussed Paul in greater detail. And what happens? How much attention do we pay to Phoebe? None. None, right? <laughs> it's so sad. How, many, how much attention do we pay to Phoebe's role in not only the promulgation of that letter to the churches in Rome, but also to the first interpretation of that letter as the one who would have brought the letter to the church, churches, right? Right, right, right. He would have been the one to, as an ambassador, right? Like, this is not just your, your post person outside delivering something in your mail. You give that letter to a trusted companion who is going to read it to them because most persons of that time cannot read. That doesn't mean that they're uneducated. They're not in the habit of reading. But also interpret what it says. Or if you want to go a little bit a generation earlier, the very, 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 very first church, those who affirm the resurrection, declare the resurrection, leave the resurrection, are who? The women. The women. The very first church is composed of women. I do think that we should spend more time thinking about how it's not just women witnessing the resurrection. They don't then just disappear from the scene. They were all students and disciples of Jesus as well. So they would have been right in the thick of things along with the other disciples in bearing witness to the teachings and the life and the resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely. From the very beginning, right? In, in the Gospel of John, who gives the, the Christological declaration, right? The first Christological de declaration. It's not the man. John plays this all the way through. Yeah. Nicodemus doesn't recognize, doesn't understand what's happening. Flip the page, the woman in Samaria does recognize whom she sees, right? <laughs> right. And, and yeah. it keeps on going down all of this. Or, or think about Junia, and I'm coming to, to the women, many of right. them, yeah. very great theologians. Think of Junia, right, in, in Romans 16, 7. And think how much ink has been spilled to translate her into a man. Right, yep. I mean, I remember... Well, her name into a man's name, right? Right, right, right. right. Yeah. We, one of the things that we do with the students, because after we, we depart from you in Israel, we go to Greece and we go to Corinth. And Corinth has a beautiful museum. I don't know if you have been there. Next time, we have to go together. As you enter the door, what do we do with museums? We enter the door and we don't look right and left. We keep on going and we'll go to the exit. Well... If you look to the left, immediately as you enter, there is a huge, well, it's a big inscription that has that was found um, in the mid-50s, right? It has 85 lines or so of Greek text. And it is the so-called Junia Theodora of Corinth. It's an inscription of Junia Theodora. It's, her name is right there. And she's it's the whole description about what she has done, 85 lines. She's described as a Roman living in Corinth, who is also, quote, 
among your citizens, the description says, referring to the, the officials, she's said to be noble, good, benevolent, living with discretion, a friend of the Lycians, which is a sister city. She is honored in this inscription. So we have students turn, and we have those Bible and theology students who have taken a little bit of Greek, try to translate the first five words, which are Junia's name. What gender is the ending of that word? <laughs> right. Because she yep. clearly called a woman. And you go from yeah. there. So in yeah. the stories we tell and how we tell the stories, women have been pushed to the back. Which doesn't mean that they weren't there. No. And throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of the church, women were pillars of the church. Yeah. So we have many, many examples of first such testimonies. We have in the second century, two women, very different women in different parts of the empire, we have Blandina, who's a slave in, in what is modern-day France, in, in, in Lyon, who's executed during the, uh, a local persecution in 170, roughly around 170. And we have another woman, or a couple of women, in uh, uh, Carthage. Perpetua is a young woman, 21-year-old aristocrat, or if not aristocratic, higher you know, social stratus with her slave, Felicity, which, who's a teenager, both executed, bearing witness. So these are the stories. One is called The Martyrs of Lyon, and the other is The Martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, or Felicitas, hmm. in, in 203. So one, 170 and 203. And, and these are stories Christians told repeatedly. Before them, we have a whole genre of literature that is extra canonical, not included in our canon, right, yeah. including the Acts of Paul and Thecla, the various gospels and revelations that we usually call Gnostic gospels, etc. But aside from their theological tradition, the point is that the protagonists and the ones through whom God is revealed are women. We have one of the earliest charismatic movements. In, in North Africa, right, led by two women prophetesses, the Montanists, right? Even though the, the movement takes the name from the male leader, the prophetesses of the movement were two women, Priscilla and Maximilla, right? So the movement is known by the leadership of the man, Montanus, but the actual theological force behind the movement were the women. So in the in the era of martyrdom, women were profoundly present, and they were present because they bore witness to the name of Christ with their words and their life. But then as we transition into that century that we talked about, that transitional century of the fourth century, early fifth century, there is a a booming of very high-class, very well-educated women, both East and West, who partner with men not only to support them financially, but also to be their partners. A great example of that is Macrina, Saint Macrina. She is the older sister. Her brothers, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa, Saint Basil and Saint Gregory, 
along with their friend Gregory of Nazianzus, are called the Cappadocians. And those three, Gregory, Gregory, and Basil, are, uh, along with Athanasius and Cyril, the pillars, the fathers of the church, right? Yeah. Yeah. But Macrina is, as Basil and Gregory called her, their theological teacher. Gregory, who they both love her, their sister. You know, when Basil came to Athens to study, do graduate school, came back, he, he studied rhetoric, he thought he was, you know, all that. Uh, Macrina pulled him by the ear aside and said, listen, buddy, um, <laughs> if you want to serve God, you have to pay attention to your spiritual life. Such wisdom. Uh, this, this is a, a modern translation of what, you know, happened. But actually, she brought her brother to the beauty of the spiritual life and asceticism. Hmm. Gregory of Nyssa, the younger brother, has a, a, a whole treatise, a dialogue that goes back and forth between him and his sister on soul and resurrection. Hmm. It, it is very much parallel to or mirroring platonic dialogues, which is a yeah. common way of speaking in antiquity. And Macrina is the teacher of Gregory all the way through. Something I find interesting is that the Orthodox Church preserves the memory of these women. They're visible in the church on icons. They have feast days. They are recognized for their contributions. But many Western Protestants have probably never heard of the powerful stories of those women I cannot help but ponder if the absence of their stories has influenced the 19th and 20th century conversations or debates we've been having about the theological validity of women teaching the Bible. Obviously, I think it's okay, but I have spent my whole professional career needing to defend who I am as a teacher in a female body. So I know this is a complex conversation, but there is a part of me that wonders how much of my experience in the Christian world would have changed if we have preserved the memory of the powerful contributions women made in the early church. And Dr. Kalanzas goes on to list even more women. How many of these women have you heard of? We have... Marcella, we have Paula, who supports Jerome and, and, and makes his life possible, right? Uh, we have Marcellina, the, the, the older sister of Ambrose, the Bishop Ambrose of Milan, Milan who, who is one of the pillars, the doctors of the church. Well, Ambrose is very much recognized for his development of monasticism in the West, and later, of course, Gregory the Great. But Ambrose puts the foundation on this. But whom did he have entrusted with that development? Well, his sister. Right. So we tell the yeah. story of Ambrose, but we don't tell the story of Marcelina. We tell the story of John Chrysostom, the the, the bishop, the, the golden mouth, right? The great bishop oh, right. yes. uh, of Constantinople. But we don't t tell the story of Olympias, the deaconess who built hospitals and orphanages. John Chrysostom, before he becomes uh, bishop or archbishop of bishop of Constantinople, which is the capital of the empire at the time, he was a priest in Antioch, of the, one of the biggest churches in Antioch, and he wrote on wealth and poverty. Whom did he entrust, or with whom did he partner when he became bishop of the capital city to enact that theological expression? But Olympias. Now, the fact that she's called the deaconess. It is not just 
to be dropped. Deaconesses are ordained offices in the church. And in the East, it lasted for almost a thousand years, 900 years. Recently, in the last few years, the Church of Alexandria has reinstituted the ordained office of deaconess. So the ministry of the ordained ministry of women was part of the essence of the church throughout time. Melania, she had land from the southwestern tip of Spain all the way through France and Switzerland and Italy to Rome and Sicily. Goodness. When she became when her husband died and then her son died, one of her sons died, when when she devoted her life to the monastic life, she became a monastic. She freed thousands of slaves. And that was just in Gaul and Hispania. So, I mean, like we're, we're talking about the 1%. This is the 1% of the 1%. And yet she worked all her life after she devoted herself to monasticism, to found monasteries, to found monastic communities, to bring peace theological upon theologically debating or arguing communities in North Africa and Palestine. I mean, these are forceful women yeah. that we have neglected, we, whose stories we have neglected to tell. Yeah. Fortunately, we are very, very fortunate that in recent generations, there have been uh, a number of scholarly and more popular presentations of those stories so that we can start retelling the story of Christianity properly. We choose how we want to tell history. It's not only the events that happened, but whose story we choose to tell and the way in which we tell it. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm tangentially also studying the movement of Christianity throughout Africa and into Asia. And I've been surprised to learn that Augustine, a famous early church father, was African. He grew up in what is now called Algeria. Yes, he was a Roman citizen, but he was a proper African. His mother was a Berber. We talk about what he contributed to the church, but we kind of strip that Africanness out of his identity. The harm that comes from neglecting to celebrate the African contributions to Christian theology is something we're going to talk about more next week. But Dr. Kalanzas and I talked about Augustine, and Dr. Kalanzas ended up giving me a great endorsement for next week's episode. Athanasius, the great theologian, right? He's a copt. He's, he's Egyptian. Yeah. He's not German. He, he's not German. Cyril, the great theologian. Egyptian. Origin. Egyptian. Right. Uh, African Christianity. Vince Bantu. B-A-N-T-U. Oh, he's coming on the podcast. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Next week I interview him. That's wonderful. Because he... Yep book is, is a fascinating book. It's a yep. brilliant book that needs to be told. We forget, we forget about the Ethiopian churches right. way before colonization, right? right. We, we forget about the, the Nubian churches. Yep. Right? Christianity was in the mountains of Nubia 
way before the Europeans could cross the Sahara. Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa stood against Islam for generations and generations. Yeah. And we just forget it because we choose to take the northwestern turn in our telling of, of, of history instead of the south and eastern turn. Right, exactly. The story. Yeah. And it's just really good for us to pause every once in a while and ask those questions. Whose stories are not being told? Right. Or who's on the fringes of the story? Can we relook at the story and see if they actually played a greater role than we give them credit for? Because there's, yeah, it, it ends up impacting generations of the church to come. And, and we yeah. do the same thing not only with African Christianity, but we also do we North and West Aryan people, the same thing with Eastern Christianity. And yes. by, that, by that, I mean Orthodox Christianity. Absolutely. Orthodox Christianity is just an enigma to the to the to North Americans or Europeans <laughs> if true. they have not encountered that, right? It's peculiar, it's foreign, people don't understand what it is, and yet we want to appropriate the thought that came from the Greek-speaking world without wanting to enter the context of that Greek-thinking world and say, what do they actually mean when they say that? Because we make Christianity about ideas. Christianity is not about ideas. Christianity is embodied. Right. Right. We do that at the table every, every week. Yeah, that's right. This is my body. This is my blood. It doesn't say these are my ideas. Right. Right. Christianity is embodied. Uh, well, you even mentioned that when persecution of the church happened, it was because of the actions of right. people in the church. Right. You know, yeah. So yeah. We, we need to recover. And what we do at the center for the Witten Center for Early Christian Studies and other places throughout the Evangelical Academy right now is we don't just pick sections to read. We actually engage and enter in depth. The same thing we do when we come and you lead us through Israel and Palestine, right? Mm -hmm. We find a tree and we sit under it and we eat, you know, peanut butter and, you know, <laughs> peanut bread. <laughs> right. right? But yeah. we do the same with texts. We do the yeah. same with ideas. We actually, quote, walk it through. One of the things that I ask my, myself because of my advisor and my, then I pass on my students is when they open anything, I ask them to imagine what it smells like, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's such a good practice. Right, even of the Bible, right? When you tell the story of Jesus, like, what does it smell like? What does it taste like? Jesus sits by the well in Samaria in midday because he's tired, right? Yeah. What does he smell like? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's not always pretty. Or at least, <laughs> let's put it differently. It does smell, smell something. Yeah. And that yeah. shared tactile sensory expression is what actually is passed around. Yeah, it's so great. Thank you very much for your time. 
Thank it's you. so engaging. And if anyone re- it becomes curious about these early church theologians, uh, is are there easy entry-level books for people or what resources are there so that people can go, oh, I've never actually thought about this time period. Right. Um, where can they go to find something? There are wonderful resources, many of them. It all depends on what one wants to do. And, and I'm, mm. I'm vague in, in my answer, and I will provide you a whole bibliography. <laughs> Fantastic. You, you can link to this because it's like saying, what can I read? What one book can I read or two to understand all of European and American history in the last 400 years? <laughs> right. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, but... If, if, it goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation right. where you were talking about patristics kind of all being in like one paragraph or the right. thoughts of one person in one paragraph. It, it doesn't do it justice. It doesn't. But the book that I would begin and go from there was, was the book that I mentioned by um, Robert Louis Wilkin, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. Uh, it's Yale University. You can find it easily on Amazon and other places. It's a beautiful introduction to the thought and the practices of the early church. Thank you so much, Dr. Klanzis. I appreciate uh, not only all of the time that you gave us today, but just your life experiences, all of the hours you've put into digging through and dealing with this material and then being able to present it to us in such a wonderful and understandable way. So thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure and my honor, Dr. Parker, to be with you. And I'm looking forward to walking the land again soon enough, if not next summer. Hopefully. (laughs) God be with you. And next week, we get to talk more about the early church contributors, but those whose stories we forget to tell, and the long-lasting ramifications for that silence. You don't want to miss that conversation. If you would like updates on what I'm doing, you can join me on Instagram or Facebook at Narrative of Place, or on Twitter at Cindy Parker, PhD. That is C-Y-N-D-I, Parker, PhD. To be among the first to hear about educational and food and wine trips to Israel and maybe Turkey, you can sign up for the newsletter on my website at narrativeofplace.com. And of course, you can join the Patreon team with fun perks like a sneak peek at the chapter of my upcoming book, which might come out in February, spices from my favorite guys in Israel, and access to online teaching materials. If you want to join the team, there is a link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for joining me at the table for these conversations. The talented Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created all of the music you hear. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. Music